Presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present journalist and author Sasha Abramsky, who explains why democracy itself hangs in the balance as Donald Trump faces federal criminal charges for his attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Nadine Fareed Johnson of PEN America who discusses the goals of her group's federal lawsuit against unconstitutional book bans carried out by Florida's Escambia County School District. And Tim Rowland, a freelance reporter, who talks about the shortage of affordable housing in New York State's Adirondack Park, an echo of the parallel housing crisis across the U.S. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Human Rights Watch reports that Malian soldiers and foreign fighters, identified as members of the Russia-linked Wagner Group, have committed executions and forced disappearances of dozens of civilians in the African nation of Mali since December 2022, according to the Intercept news site. Researchers found that the longtime U.S.-backed Malian military also tortured detainees in an army camp and destroyed and looted civilian property as part of its protracted campaign against militant Islamists. In December 2021, the Malian junta reportedly authorized the deployment of Wagner mercenary forces to fight Islamist militants after close to two decades of failed Western-backed counterterrorism campaigns in exchange for almost $11 million per month, as well as access to gold and uranium mines. U.S.-trained military officers have also repeatedly conducted coups, including the leader who toppled Mali's governments in 2020 and 2021. While the coups triggered restrictions on U.S. aid, Pentagon officials have pointed to Wagner's growing influence across Africa as a rationale to keep U.S. money flowing to Mali's coup government. China is far ahead of the U.S. in the extraction and processing of rare earth metals used in critical military applications like the F-35 fighter jet and green energy technology such as electric vehicles. Washington has repeatedly attempted to restart its rare earth mining program, but thus far has failed to make a dent in China's dominance in the processing of these metals over the last 40 years. The West's push to develop independent supplies of critical minerals took on greater urgency after Beijing imposed export controls last month on the strategic metals gallium and germanium, raising global fears that China could soon block exports of rare earth metals or processing technology. Reuters reports that technical complexities Partnership strains and pollution concerns are hampering Western companies' ability to wrest market share away from China, which, according to the International Energy Agency, controls 87% of global rare earth minerals refining capacity. A year ago, 8,000 Amazon warehouse workers in Staten Island, New York, won a historic labor movement victory for the newly formed Amazon Labor Union. 
However, Amazon has never recognized the independent union, and ALU elections to unionize other Amazon facilities have been unsuccessful so far. The National Labor Relations Board recently filed a complaint against Amazon for failing to bargain with the union. In These Times magazine reports that its frustration has grown at the Staten Island Warehouse, an 80-member reform caucus was organized and filed a lawsuit in federal court to reform the union's constitution and hold new elections for officers. Labor activist Bill Fletcher Jr. attempted to mediate between the two sides, but Fletcher's effort failed, writing a letter declaring it's clear the ALU's leadership must be reorganized and reaffirmed by the membership. Connor Spence, a co-founder of the union and its former treasurer, argues that in order to do the kind of organizing necessary to take on Amazon and get a strong contract, democracy is key. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Disgraced former President Donald Trump was indicted by special counsel Jack Smith on new federal criminal charges on August 1st. Based on his alleged role, leading a multi-pronged attempt to stay in power after losing the 2020 presidential election to Joe Biden. The alleged scheme included a conspiracy to pressure Vice President Mike Pence to stop the Electoral College vote count confirming the election result, enlisting fake Republican Party electors in seven states, and exploiting the violent January 6 coup attempt that killed five people and injured hundreds of Capitol Police officers. Trump was indicted on four criminal counts, conspiracy to violate civil rights, conspiracy to defraud the government, the corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding, and a conspiracy to carry out such obstruction. Trump has now been indicted three times in just four months. That includes the adult film star Hush Money case, and the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case that will presumably go to trial next year. It's expected that Trump will soon be indicted on additional charges in Fulton County, Georgia, related to his alleged criminal interference in the state of Georgia's 2020 election vote count. Your reporter spoke with Sasha Abramsky, author and regular contributor to The Nation magazine, who explains why he believes U.S. democracy itself hangs in the balance as Donald Trump faces the most serious federal criminal charges leveled against him thus far. I mean, if you look at what happened between the summer of 2020, when the polls turned against Trump and it was pretty clear that he was going to lose the election, and January 6, 2021, when he stood at the podium in Washington, D.C., and basically egged a mob to go down to the Capitol and... In, in a sense, try and overturn the election with as much violence as possible. If you look at that six-month period, day in and day out, Trump and his acolytes, the crazy lawyers that were surrounding him, the crazy political consultants that were surrounding him, the ever more extreme members of paramilitary groups and all these other organizations that came out of the woodwork to support Trump, 
all of these groups put together a conspiracy, essentially, to keep Trump in office, even if the pub public voted him out of office. And this is extraordinary. Um, I mean, Trump did many, many extraordinary things as president, many, many rule-breaking, norm-shattering things. But the idea that a president of the United States would essentially put his own personal ego before the durability of the republic, th this is unheard of. And we saw what happened. We saw that people lost their lives. We saw that the Capitol building was violated. We saw the most extreme levels of intimidation and coercion being used against elections officials from Brat Raffensperger in Georgia through to the Secretary of State in Arizona and so on. And ultimately, we saw a mob rampaging through the Capitol trying to hang the vice president of the United States. You, you couldn't make this stuff up. Um, and Trump has avoided justice for years and years and years, both on this charge and then all the other illegalities and sordid behaviors that characterized his adult life. And it's now finally catching up with him. And you, you talked about all the indictments in the introduction to the program. You talked about all the indictments he's now facing. These are serious charges. This isn't sort of some Mickey Mouse game where he's going to get a slap on the wrist if he's convicted. This is a president or an ex-president of the United States who faces the very, very real prospect of significant time in prison because of rampant illegality. And I think it's a long, long time coming. This process now has to play itself out. But, you know, when Trump says that this is a political witch hunt, don't buy this for a moment. He was arraigned by a grand jury. He's going to face a trial by jury of his peers. He's going to have all of the opportunities to mount a credible defense. There's no witch trial involved here. This is just a long overdue comeuppance. This is, this is a long overdue process of justice playing out for Donald Trump. Sasha, from the perspective of someone originally from the UK, what does this spectacle look like? The support for Trump? In America's deeply flawed democracy, where an electoral college instead of direct popular vote is what determines who sits in the White House. And then, of course, we have all the mechanisms Republicans have employed to suppress the vote, including partisan gerrymandering designed to disenfranchise millions of Americans, primarily communities of color. You grew up in another system, the parliamentary system in, in Great Britain. But I, I know you talk to people from around the world. What does this spectacle look like? When I, when I go around the world and I talk to people, and I do travel a lot, and I talk to a lot of people both in the world of politics and then just more generally people I meet you know, in different areas of the world, there is a sense of amusement that someone like Donald Trump could be a viable candidate. There was a sense of amusement about it in 2016. There was a deep fear of his re-election in 2020 because it was clear by then that you know, he was no Silvio Berlusconi type. He was way more dangerous. He wasn't just this clown with a lot of money who'd bought his way into office. He was a clown with a lot of money who was extremely powerful as a demagogue. Um, and I think, you know, fast forward to today and to the upcoming election, there is just a horror out there that this man is even remotely competitive because he's shown how dangerous he is. And he's shown what damage he can do to the American democratic fabric. And people overseas realize that. You know, sometimes it's healthy to take a step back. And, you know, when you're in the sort of chaos of America from the inside, you know, you know, we see the chaos, but we mainly don't see the full implications of it. But when you step out and you look at America from a distance and you see this great, you, you know, you mentioned it's flawed. It is flawed, but it's also a great democracy. And when you see this great democracy floundering 
And you see the way in which millions and millions of people are buying into a personality cult around Donald Trump. Well, that's horrifying because America has such extraordinary clout on the world stage. It is so dominant. It's so important militarily, economically, diplomatically. You name it, America's important. And if America goes off the rails, if it has a sort of collective nervous breakdown around Donald Trump, well, that makes life in America messier, but it also makes life globally messier. And I think that's something that we don't always think about, that the choices we make in this country, by virtue of how powerful this country is, those choices matter to 8 billion people around the world. And the idea that Trump could end up again as the most powerful human being on earth on a vengeance mission, I mean, that's horrifying. That's got to be horrifying for people of all political ideologies all around the world at this point. That was Sasha Abramsky, author and regular contributor to The Nation magazine. Find a link to his recent article titled The Latest Trump Indictment is the One That Really Counts and Related Commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Donald Trump faces multiple serious criminal indictments as he battles 12 other candidates to win the Republican Party's presidential nomination. But another battle is being waged across the country in advance of the 2024 election. Under the guise of parental rights, right-wing Republicans and other extremist groups have descended on school boards, city council meetings, and political forums to demand the banning of books in public schools and libraries, as well as the censorship of history and literature in school curricula. Targets of the GOP Culture War's repressive campaign are books mostly dealing with the issues of race, gender, and sexuality, focused mainly on LGBTQ themes. When it comes to the teaching of U.S. history, many of these same groups demand the censorship of curricula, dealing with America's slave-era past, Jim Crow discriminatory laws, contemporary structural racism, and inequality. While pro-democracy parents' groups rally to defend free expression in public schools across the nation, the group PEN America, along with publisher Penguin Random House, authors and parents of children affected by book bans, filed a lawsuit in federal court on May 17th asking for books banned by Florida's Escambia County School District to be returned to school library shelves. Your reporter spoke with Nadine Fareed Johnson, managing director of PEN America's Washington office, who explains the goals of the lawsuit and the larger fight being waged nationwide against censorship and the suppression of free speech. So Escambia County is is really at the forefront of much of the book banning that we've seen, not only in Florida, but around the country. When the Escambia County uh, School Board began to remove books from school libraries, they did so because the books addressed issues of race and racism and LGBTQ plus identities. Um, and so Penn America joined with Penguin Random House and with authors and parents and students um, to file suit to contest these book bans as being unconstitutional. Describe a bit about what kinds of books are being banned, uh, how these decisions are being made, and the crux of the matter in terms of why you believe this to be unconstitutional. Absolutely. So what we're seeing in terms of being banned, as I mentioned, most of the books focus on issues of race, racism, and LGBTQ plus identities. There are 
hundreds of books that have been challenged. I can give you a few names of ones that have been banned um, or restricted in some way. We have All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson, who we are privileged to have as a fellow plaintiff, Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, A Court of Mist and Fury by Sarah Moss, uh, Draw Me a Star by Eric Carle, um, Empire of Storms by Sarah Moss, uh, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close by Johnson Saffron Foyer. The, the list just goes on. And what we've seen here is actually a pretty calculated attempt by actually one individual in the district um, who began to file complaints a little over a year and a half ago. I think it was about in the spring of, of 2022. And she would file challenges to the books. Now, Escambia County actually had a process. When I say, when I talk about the county, I'm talking about the school district. They actually had a process by which book challenges were reviewed. They were taken under consideration, um, and then a committee would come forth and state whether they believe the challenge should be upheld um, or not. And in this case, what we found was that even though the committee that was charged with reviewing the challenges was coming back and saying the challenges um, should not be upheld, the district was nevertheless choosing to remove or otherwise restrict access to the books. And so ultimately, our decision to sue was based um, on, as I mentioned, it was based on the Constitution. We filed um, First Amendment and 14th Amendment um, causes of action, turning to not only the right to receive information, which is part of um, the rights of the First Amendment and that inured to the benefit of the students, um, but also um, we wanted to point out the viewpoint discrimination that was happening with respect to these books. Because what we know from Supreme Court jurisprudence, Scott, is that school administrators do have significant discretion to determine the content of what's in the school library, but they cannot exercise that discretion in a manner that is deemed to be political or partisan. And so what that means in practice is that the First Amendment bars a school district from removing books from school libraries or restricting access to them based on a political or ideological disagreement with the ideas in the books. And that's what we're seeing happening in Escambia County. Nadine, how widespread are the pattern of book banning across the country, primarily in Republican districts, Republican school districts, and Republican states? You know, I've heard a, a lot of uh, anecdotal information about book bannings here and there and everywhere, but I'm sure PEN America has looked into the kind of hard numbers. What are we talking about when we're talking about the book banning that uh, seems to have taken hold of the Republican Party? So I want, I want to share this in, in a way that I hope really speaks to the depth and breadth of what we are seeing here. We are talking about over 4 million students in the U.S. who are affected by these bans. It has happened in 37 different states. So while you are correct that there has been most of these bans are based in a particular type of ideology, um, we are really seeing it happening all across the country in different pockets all across the country. We have calculated now in the last school year, well, I guess in the 2021-2020 school, school year, we found over 2,500 instances of book bans taking place that affected over 1,600 titles. So if you're thinking about this in terms of just the, the numbers of people who are affected. I mentioned the 4 million students. Obviously, their parents are also affected. The authors are affected, and the, the translators of some of these books are affected when there's, when there's translation at stake. The artists that are providing um, their material for the books, it really does affect not only, again, the right to receive this information, but also 
the the livelihoods um, and the ability of the of these authors, translators, and artists to be able to share their work. And of course, that's not even touching upon the teachers and school librarians whose professional opinions are being disregarded in this fever to ban books across the country, and their ability to actually engage in the pedagogical work that they are seeking to do with the students. We've been very, very steeped in this. We have been following the data, doing the research, and providing information with people. We have resources on our website for librarians, for writers, for others who are interested in getting involved. We would encourage you to do so, and we thank you. That was Nadine Fareed Johnson, Managing Director of PEN America's Washington office. Learn more about the PEN America and Penguin Random House federal lawsuit against book banning in Florida's Escambia County schools by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Finding decent, affordable housing in the U.S. has become ever more difficult in the 21st century. Inside New York State's six-million-acre Adirondack Park, three times larger than Yellowstone, many rental cottages have been converted to condominiums, and a large number of private homes or apartments have been converted to Airbnb and VRBO short-term rentals. Options for vacationers are now limited to booking standard hotel rooms, or using one of the short-term vacation rental websites. These changes in the real estate market, enabled by digital platforms, have exerted increasing pressure on local residents' ability to either buy or rent property inside the boundaries of the park, which is protected by the New York State Constitution as forever wild and free. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhus, who's vacationing in the Adirondacks, spoke with Tim Rowland, a freelance reporter based in the area, who's writing a multi-part series on the housing crisis for Adirondack Explorer magazine. Here he explains that during the COVID pandemic, outsiders were bidding up property values, buying property up with cash sight unseen, wreaking havoc on the local real estate market. He also talks about recent developments that could lead to possible solutions. Housing has always been kind of a touchy situation in the Adirondacks. The, uh, the housing shortage, uh, such as it is, is not really new. You know, it's always been vacation homes and uh, a certain competition between inside people who, um, you know, have lived here all their lives and outside people coming in and buying up the housing stock. What has happened in the Adirondacks very closely parallels what has happened throughout the country. So in that respect, we're not any different from the uh, the shortages and the price escalation that's happened in other, in other parts of the country. What sets the Adirondacks apart is our inability for the market to meet this new demand. Uh, the land is, of course, very tightly regulated by the state. And of course, I think most people would agree, rightly so, they want to protect the wilderness. But that means you can't go out and just lay out a big subdivision and build a bunch of homes. Beyond that, the topography doesn't lend itself to uh, housing developments. The 
The land is very steep. The valleys are very narrow. It's hard to find any place uh, that's flat that doesn't flood. And so there's just a, a lot of different problems in terms of addressing this shortage. We've been talking about buying homes mostly, but what about renting? Have they been able to rent or are they also priced out? That market is, you know, you can't say it's gone, but it's getting that way. Two things have happened. One, a lot of the long-term rental properties have been turned into uh, what they call short-term rentals, which are basically just that. They're people who um, stay for a week or a weekend. And the the benefits to that for the landlord are twofold. One, it's a lot more lucrative. You can probably make two, three times the amount of money renting it out on a weekly basis as you can just renting it by the month. And two, the Airbnb clients tend to be fairly well screened. So you don't have a lot of the problems that you might have with getting a bad tenant. And so long-term rentals tend to be a lot uh, more challenging in that respect. So what happened, you had a lot of these uh, long-term rentals being converted to short-term rentals and people who are not eligible to buy a house, and there are a lot of them because they don't have the credit perhaps, or they don't have the money, have been forced to move to the fringes of the park or the fringes of the population centers. So you have people that are commuting you know, 45 minutes or an hour by car to get to their jobs. There's very little in the way of public transportation here. That compounds their problems because uh, you know, these are people working for uh, low wages who have trouble affording not just housing, but also gasoline and their transportation costs. You were talking it in one of the articles I read about solutions, which you know I think probably don't really affect that many people, but can you talk a little bit about that? The market economy is not able to do this on its own. I think that's, you know, everybody tends to agree. So you need some kind of economic tailwind. You need either donated land or you need uh, free septic or you need some assistance with down payments. And there are, there are various organizations, some government, some nonprofit, and some just private, private people who have donated land. Uh, you, so you have a lot of people who are trying to reduce the costs in any way they can. And so what you're finding is that a municipality may buy a chunk of land at below market rate from um, someone who is interested in, in just being helpful. And so the town will take that, they will put a sewer and water system on it, and then build the homes and sell to people who maybe could afford the price of the home, but not the price of the land, the price of the septic, the price of the, all, all these uh, other things that go along with it and make homes more expensive. You know, there's no such thing, obviously, as free housing, but there are ways to cut around the edges and make the housing a little more affordable. And that's what you see a lot of the nonprofits and municipalities and philanthropists trying to do. That was Tim Rowland, a freelance journalist who's writing a multi-part series on the housing crisis in New York State's Adirondack Park. Learn more about the shortage of affordable housing in the Adirondacks and across the U.S., by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, 
a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KPSQ in Fayetteville, Arkansas, FRSC in Santa Cruz, California, REC Delmarva FM in Riverton, Maryland, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.